0: Hello, listeners. It's March 15th, 2020. The situation with the novel coronavirus pandemic has progressed significantly in just the past week. I wanted Inside the Boards to be able to make a contribution towards addressing issues surrounding the whole pandemic. And so we've put a pause on our regular scheduled programming, if you will. In an effort to provide some clinical education on what to look for in patients who have COVID-19 and to provide perspectives from experts and frontline individuals who are preparing or currently dealing with the effects of this pandemic within their local communities and from the perspective of their own specialties. We'll be putting episodes up like this on our medical education podcast, but because there's a bit of a turnaround in those, uh, you can download our mobile application. And before we get time to, you know, edit them really hardcore and put them into podcast episodes, we'll be putting these interviews as they're completed this week into our mobile application on the Inside, Inside the Boards playlist that you can find there. This is the first episode where Dr. Ted O'Connell, IETB's Chief Content Officer, interviews Dr. Raj Dasgupta, who has impressive credentials aside from his expertise in pulmonary critical care. Our goal in doing this is to ensure that the information that you're learning about COVID-19 is accurate combating not only the virus but the hysteria uh, that, that may spread along with it. So thank you so much for listening to this. Share this with your friends. And if you have particular questions you'd like addressed in this series, hit me up on Twitter at Boards Insider. You can email us at info at insidetheboards.com or you can direct message us on pretty much all the social platforms at inside the Boards. And for you students studying for the USMLE Step 1, we will be launching our Study Smarter series on the Inside the Boards Study Smarter podcast very soon. Uh, But this week we're focusing our efforts on uh, producing content related to the COVID-19 educational initiative that we're attempting. And while this uh, particular episode will go up on all our medical education channels, um, just besides this one, Inside the Boards has the Physiology by Physio podcast the Crush Step 1 podcast, USMLE Step 2 Secrets, the original OG Inside the Boards podcast, USMLE Step 1 Success Stories produced in partnership with Physio, and our Study Smarter podcast all about question dissections for the boards.
1: This is Ted O'Connell, your host for today. I think all of you know me, but if you need any additional information about me, you can find it over on my website over at tedxoconnell.com. Today we have a very special guest who I'll introduce in just a moment, and we're going to be talking about the COVID-19 virus, the novel coronavirus that's causing so much uh, disarray in our world. This is a very rapidly evolving public health issue and, and topic So I want to acknowledge that anything we're going to talk about today may certainly change over the coming days, weeks, and months. The COVID-19 virus is affecting people worldwide and is now impacting our local communities here in the United States. This is leading to unprecedented cancellations in sporting events, travel, group gatherings, and education. For medical students, schools are moving online or closing down entirely, and clerkships are being canceled at some schools, so we think it's a really timely topic for discussion. My guest today is Dr. Raj Dasgupta. He completed his internal medicine residency at Michigan State University, pulmonary and critical care fellowship at Columbia University, St. Luke's and Roosevelt Hospital, and a sleep medicine fellowship at Henry Ford Hospital. Dr. Raj, as he is known, is quadruple board-certified in internal medicine, pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. He practices medicine at Keck Medicine of USC's Division of Pulmonary, Critical Care, and Sleep Medicine. He's been featured on multiple media outlets and television shows, such as The Doctors and Larry King Now. Dr. Raj travels regularly to teach board review courses for USMLE Steps 1, 2, and 3, as well as the Internal Medicine Board Certification Exam. His stated life mission is to educate patients, students, and aspiring doctors for better patient care. To that end, he has published a series of books titled Medicine Morning Report, Beyond the Pearls, and is an editor-in-chief of Elsevier's Clinical Key Student Global Medicine Education Platform. Finally, Dr. Raj has received numerous teaching awards, which is a real testament to his dedication to both patients and the next generation of physicians. So welcome to the podcast, Raj.
2: Hey, thank you very much, Ted. I'm super honored to be here and to be sharing something together because we both share the same passion when it comes to teaching and educating and definitely, you know, med students, residents, the public need education about COVID-19.
1: Absolutely. So we really appreciate you being on the podcast. Um, you, you have tremendous credentials. Is there anything that I missed that you wanted to the audience to know about you?
2: No, I gotta say, if you could actually put a camera on me right now, I'm kind of blushing a little bit, Ted. Thank you for that very extended, long uh, introduction.
1: Well, it's very, very well deserved. So let's jump into some questions about what's sure. going on in the world today with COVID-19. Um, and I'm going to start just kind of really with the basics. So with COVID-19, what would you say are some of the, the important symptoms to recognize in, in a patient who presents to the office or to the emergency department?
2: Oh, that's a great question. You know, and I'm not going to skirt around it. I'm not going to hide from it. But I want to give you. Can I go for a little background first, one of my little spiel's before we go into that? Is that correct?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, please do.
2: awesome. You know, one thing I wanted to tell people is that people think coronavirus is brand spanking new, and it's not. You know, people like me, and you, Ted, we've known a coronavirus for quite a long time. In fact, since the like 1960s, coronavirus has been out there. And when we think about it, it commonly affects humans. And there has been millions of cases of. Coronavirus, but there are different subtypes, and some of the subtypes actually infect animals. And when we think about these subtypes, I'm going to throw some names out there where other clinicians will be familiar with. There was something called MERS. There was something called SARS. And when we think about SARS, you know, the acute respiratory distress syndrome. You know, this was around 2003. This was a type of coronavirus, and in fact, it's going to be when we have these coronaviruses that infect animals they mutate a little bit and then they infect humans and these are the deadly ones and that's what SARS is and that's what this COVID-19 is and in fact the other name for COVID-19 is SARS-2 so because it's very similar it's very similar so it is unfortunate that you know we have COVID-19 and what's going on right now but coronavirus as the name it's been around for for quite some time but To go back to your question, because everyone asked me about that, is that, you know, who's duking out for supremacy right now? It is influenza virus and coronavirus. And if you put them like next to each other, you know, at least in my opinion, I can't tell you who has coronavirus and who has the flu. And you know, when we talk about the symptoms, you know, beyond my, my, my clinical experience, you know, in the last couple of weeks, you know, a lot came from an article where they were actually, you know, describing the symptoms of the individuals who were in China, where it first broke out, and they actually kind of said what percent of the symptoms they were having. So common symptoms that you would think about would be fevers. And when we talk about these fevers, they're going to be fevers of 103, 104 and they could happen out of nowhere, just like the flu, just like a boom, Mack truck just hit you. And you know, prior to these fevers happening, some of these patients could be 100% asymptomatic and I can't say that enough is that because people could be asymptomatic, that's what's causing, you know, some of this panic cuz you never know who has it. On top of that, you're going to get lower respiratory tract symptoms. So you could have shortness of breath, speaking medical words, dyspnea on exertion, you could definitely have the cough. But when they were kind of looking at the symptoms from an upper respiratory tract, you know, what I mean, the kind of, oh, I have a sore throat, I have a runny nose, some rhinitis, they didn't really see much of that. So just like, you know, when we always talk to our patients, Ted, and say, did it sound like you got hit by a Mack truck, and that's influenza, that's kind of like Coronavirus, too. But every time I want to give my opinion or my statement about coronavirus, I always got to watch what I say because things are changing all the time. It's impossible to have an interview anywhere without having your laptop open because something new will just pop up. So right before I knew I was coming on here to talk to you. They were focusing on the GI symptoms. So that was kind of interesting. So it's not a very common symptom, but some people stated that they had some loose bowel movements, some diarrhea prior to getting coronavirus. So now the thought process is, you know, when it comes to transmission, of course, we are all like, hey, it's all about respiratory droplets. Now the hot topic is, could it be exchanged fecal oral? And I just hate saying the word fecal oral because that's gross to begin with, but, you know, maybe there's more ways of transmission than we think. So this kind of goes back to, since it's a big mimicker, when we talk about other viruses, specifically influenza, the answer is, we need the testing if you really know who is who and what's what. And this comes back to and I I don't know why I'm on this little ranting spiel right now, where I always I know I told some patients and some other interviews I did that I'm sure there's people out there that actually regret not getting the influenza vaccine. Because right now, if you present to me while testing is so scarce and say I have these symptoms, if I knew or know you had the influenza vaccine, chances are that you may have more of a risk for coronavirus. So, that's my little spiel about the 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 symptoms and how they're very similar to influenza.
1: Wow, Raj, you're really uh, demonstrating your skill as a teacher already. Um, (laughs) So related to the influenza vaccine, like me, are you currently Mm -hmm. advising people who have not gotten their flu vaccine to go ahead and try to get it?
2: You know, I I 100% agree, you know, um, when we talk about the influenza vaccine, I think you Ted and me, we all have those patients that just swear something horrible happened from the influenza vaccine. I have an egg allergy. I don't want guillain brain. I don't wish those, pe- those things to anyone, but there are people who just don't believe in it. and I'm sure me and you have heard this all the time. The last time I got the flu vaccine, it gave me the flu, you know and that, and I think a lot of people are regretting those statements now. And what the scary part is, is that when we talk about getting the flu vaccine now, I agree because that's one less thing to worry about, because if someone doesn't like you out there, in theory, is it possible you can get the coronavirus COVID-19 and get influenza? The answer is yeah. I mean, there haven't been a lot of cases of that. We're not going to make it up, but it's possible. So what you need to do is take those risk factors away, things that you could control. You're not going to control the whole society, you know, using Parel to wipe their hands and everything, but you could control yourself getting the influenza vaccine. If you're having fevers, if you're not feeling well, well, that's not the time for you, but I definitely 100% agree about that.
1: Okay. Yeah, great. And while we're on that topic, I guess the same would hold true for pneumococcal vaccines and and really just trying to protect our patients from anything else that could constitute a hit to their system, right?
2: Oh, yeah. And you know what? And people ask, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this even more, like, well, how do I die from coronavirus? You know, it's just like every, any other virus that we know that, once again, let me refer to influenza, which has we have much more data on, very few people will die from the influenza virus. It's that superimposed bacterial pneumonia. And that's what we've seen so far looking at the data of people who unfortunately passed away or very ill or in the ICU. So when we talk about, I always love the word common, things are common, you know, if you're going to catch pneumonia in the the community, that's where I'm assuming it's not going to be pseudomonas. It's not going to be Klebsiella. It's going to be strep pneumo number one, two, three, four, five. So I love how you already threw the bone out there to say, hey, if it's indicated, you should get your pneumococcal vaccine. Problem is, I think it got a little confusing with pneumococcal. And I'm, I'm sure you could like being family practice, you could, you know, kind of get my back on this. Now that we have the 23 and the 13, one's called the Prevnar, one's the pneumovax, people are getting confused kind of what to do, you know, and the big thing is, is that, you know, if, let's say you have no respiratory illnesses or comorbidities to begin with, you no, know, usually you're going to get the uh, pneumovax around 60 years of age, pneumovax, which is a 23 valent, and you repeat it in five years, and that'll be around 65. We have the 13 called the Prevnar, and I hate using brand names, it's very un-university of me, but You know, in the Prevnar, you know, it actually covers more of the serious, deadly serotypes out there. And people don't realize, hey, it's not it's no problem if you've already got the 23 to get the 13. If you already got one of the 23, you could go ahead and get the 13 next. It's not a big deal. So, but if you have comorbidities, meaning that you have any respiratory illnesses, you should get them right away. That includes asthma, COPD, bronchiectasis. People with interstitial lung diseases. Kind of rattling off a lot of these, you know, pulmonary things. Uh, things I think about. But you're right, Ted. If you want to protect yourself, you know, the the influenza virus vaccine yearly, and definitely uh, the pneumococcals, That's things that you could control.
1: That's great, Raj. Yeah. So let's um, talk a little bit about distinguishing COVID-19 from other illnesses, you already dove into it a little mm-hmm. bit with some of the symptoms and and even perhaps the GI piece. Mm-hmm. But if and I know that you are working on the wards and in the ICU and aren't necessarily seeing these patients come to the office or the emergency department. But if you were in that setting, and you have somebody coming in with either upper respiratory or, or lower respiratory symptoms, in these early stages before we have like really good access to testing and you're really having to take a clinical diagnosis without those tests, how, how would you suggest sorting these people out? Like cold, URIs, pneumonias, mm-hmm. even allergies? Like wh- what's gonna for the medical students that are listening to this, how how would you suggest that they really think about this to sort these patients out? Sure,
2: I think, you know, times have changed quite a bit, you know, we really rely on the patience of being good historians, which is, is a tough, big burden on the patient itself. And we know a lot of patients are not the greatest historians and pieces of information that are not important to them are important to us. So number one, I think that for once, you know, I'm going to say I am now a big fan of protocols, you know, being a critical care doctor, I never really loved having to do a checkbox of things to do. But that's where I felt that, you know, a lot of hospitals, the United States in general, were a little behind the eight ball because we didn't have those protocols set because, you know, I don't want to skirt over what you said in your question, which was very important. If someone suspects that they have, you know, coronavirus, COVID-19, it's not as simple as going to your primary care physician because of the fact that they may not be prepared to take those samples to to to, to rule it out because they got to protect themselves in their office they need special mass to do it you know and Also, it's not as simple as telling these patients, go to the ER. That's the last thing you want people to do is to flood the ER, ruling out COVID-19. So that's where, you know, it's, you know, I don't want to switch this from a great medical talk to a political talk, but, you know, the big thing is what we need are testing centers. And I never really realized that because USC is really doing a great job now about Coordinating with Department of Health, coordinating with the CDC, and we're trying to set up these testing areas. One set up at Cedar Sinai, one set up at UCLA, ones at UC San Diego, and we're really trying to get ours set up because that's what you need. Because people don't realize is that once you get tested, it's not it's not only just getting tested. Right now, it takes three to five days to get results. And where are these people going to go? And who's going to give them the follow up? You know, so. I think that there's so many things. But if you come and we have protocols now about, you know, your level of suspicion, how bad you suspected and things actually are different now. And I hate being scary because I'm like the most positive person. But, you know, before it used to be like, do you have a travel history? Do you have three degrees of separation? Do you have a open contact? But right now, COVID-19 is in the community where people are just getting sporadic cases, And that's why sure we're all going to isolate ourselves now social isolation. But I mean, we should have done that super duper, duper long time ago. And now it's already in the community and it is going to spread no matter what. What we're trying to do is, uh, you know, slow down the rate of transmission. But the sad thing is, we don't even know if we're doing that because we don't have any testing kits to find out if we're slowing the rate of transmission. But but when we talk about, you know, this happened already, we had a a lot of cases of rule out coronavirus is that, um, you know, you, you get the history and common things are common. I think I said that for the thousandth time, you know, like. You know, you want to make sure that uh, could it just be influenza, let's just screen that out right away. Can it be an upper respiratory tract infection that we see commonly, you know, adults can get RSV, adults can get adenovirus. So we do have a respiratory panel that uh, that we order. I think the big thing is that anytime right now that's that that's going to be on your differential diagnosis, anytime, we're going to have to have appropriate isolation. And we do have isolation rooms, we do have, you know, certain protocols in place of how do we test these patients? When do we test these patients? But I think it's going to be really about that medical student staff in that case with the intern to the resident to the attending to say, hey, is this something I'm really worried about? And the problem right now is that if you keep on watching all these, you know, news reports on TV and webcasts and oh, my God, everything is starts off with the word alert, sudden update. And you're so panicked. Everyone's in panic mode now that the minute you even think it may be COVID-19, you're going to rule it out. And probably everyone listening to our podcast probably thinks they have (laughs) COVID-19 because of all these symptoms. So it's hard. And, you know, the easiest way to test for it, testing, I'm not saying we have the test kits available. I'm just saying, it's really just a nasal oral swab. And you could send it to here in LA, like, you know, Quest Labs, they can do it. But the question is, how long does it take for the turnaround? Where is that patient going to be? Should they self-isolate? Should we have to the hospital? There's really a lot of questions out there. So the answer is, we don't have good answers. But if it's on your differential, you know what I mean, and they're in the hospital right in front of you, I mean, definitely contact someone of higher authority. If you're a med student, you're intern. If you're an intern, you're attending. And we all have our emergency contacts. We have our direct contacts in the infectious disease doctors, and they're just Super duper amazing, and we should give a big shout out to everyone, especially my ID doctors that are like not sleeping anymore because they're so stressed. But we have protocols to uh, that they help us execute to make sure we treat these patients correctly.
1: Yeah, I can't emphasize that enough. The shout out that we need to give to infectious disease—they really are carrying a heavy burden these days. Yeah. So you touched a little bit on a question I wanted to ask you too. Um, you mentioned isolation rooms and I would love to hear kind of what the critical care community is saying about this, how you're preparing, even the potential for what happened in Italy with <coughs> know, with hospital systems getting overwhelmed. So what's going on in your intensive care units and, and your ICU community?
2: Yeah, no, it's very scary. And the answer is it's not just scary because of COVID nineteen coming in. You know, every time you suspect a case, every time you want to, quote, rule it out, someone else can't get that ICU bed, you know. And in a non-mean way, you know, we definitely have COPD exacerbation. You have people with interstitial lung diseases. We have a cystic fibrosis, you know, center of excellence here at USC. And, you know, those rooms, those ICU rooms will be taken up. So people can't only think about the COVID patients themselves, but who's not getting that bed? And you know, it's going to come to the point where we may have to start sharing, I know it kind of sends chills up my spine sharing these ICU room, and then it becomes, you know, not being selfish and only thinking about myself and my, my team. But what about the nurses out there, you know, it's all about nursing staff being comfortable nursing staff getting good training. And it's so easy for me, you know what I mean, to say, hey, let's execute this protocol right here. But a lot of the protocols entail my respiratory therapist to go in the room with appropriate gowning with active ventilation systems attached to their suits to do these things. And, you know, a lot of us weren't ready, prepared, or even thought this was going to happen. No, and, and, you know, and sometimes when we have certain patients that come here, it looks like that movie Outbreak from the olden days. Uh, it is really scary.
1: Yes, we're, we're living through really interesting times. Yeah. Um, are you guys seeing already cases of COVID-19 at your medical center? It, like in, in the, on the wards, in the ICUs? And, and I don't know if this is something you can talk about or not.
2: No, and it's actually really, really public knowledge. You know what I mean? I think at this point, there can't be any secrets, you know, about different hospitals. And I think the, our CDC representatives are doing such a good job. And you know how it is on your phone. Your hospital will send you updates every second. It's just, it's my, my phone is literally blowing up with emails. But the answer is, we have not had a confirmed case of COVID-19 at USC Keck Medical Center. There's been rumors that there may have been one at county, but I can't confirm that at this point right now. Uh, Definitely my neighboring hospitals around Southern California have had cases. And, you know, I always tell people, my big thing is I don't want individuals to panic. You know, if you could tell me what, if I could tell everyone what I'm all about, it's about being prepared. I'm all about that, but not being panicked. And I think that it's really easy that every time, once again, you turn on the news and it starts off with this word alert, and you're like, oh my God, what's going on? And it's going to say another case. And it's like, no, duh, there's going to be another case. If you're going to be testing more people, there are going to be more cases, you know? So I think that you always have to take everything in what context are they saying that. And the reason why I am, I'm making a big stink about this is because. You know, many people when you read on the internet—I don't think like could call it the internet anymore—but <laughs> you read a website or you know you listen to a podcast and they say you know COVID nineteen is ten times more deadly than influenza and you got to get the numbers because people only hear the word ten times. But you know, talking to some of my ID buddies over here, you know, the mortality rate for influenza is around point 0.1%, which is good. It's not the greatest. People still die from it because it's point 0.1% of what total number. But if you talk about 10 times point 0.1, that's a 1% mortality. So it may not be the number the way it flashes on the screen and makes everyone panic. But it's good to understand these things and be aware that it is good we're discovering more cases to an extent because then we know who to isolate and who needs to actually be wearing masks and not be wearing masks. So remember, take everything for face value.
1: Right. And even that mortality rate number is certainly going to evolve over time because right yeah. now the patients who are getting tested are likely the ones that are the most critically ill yep. and not all comers out in the community, right? So that we're, we're testing the ones who are most ill that are more likely to have mortality associated with their illness. So it will probably skew downward as, as time goes on.
2: I agree. And we should tell our, one of our other themes for today's podcast should be not everyone needs to get tested. And that's hard right. with all the panic going on out there. But yeah, if you have comorbidities, you're immunosuppressed, you're on steroids, you have HIV I mean, definitely these are the people that need to be tested.
1: Great. I, I want to pick your brain a little bit as yep. an intensivist here, Raj, and uh-huh. kind of do some teaching for the students who are listening to the podcast. Sure. So a patient who actually has coronavirus and is significantly ill from that and hospitalized, you mentioned earlier, the it's the secondary bacterial pneumonias that are a real issue. Can you talk mm-hmm. about that and also about ARDS and kind of what's being seen around the world with those who are getting critically ill with coronavirus?
2: When we talk about how does a pulmonologist like me get involved or feel passionate about COVID-19, it's because of the lungs. And like we both said, that is going to be the the organ that causes all those problems. So I would say that um, having a superimposed bacterial infection, the way I look at it is that that virus does a damage your lungs, makes your immune system weak, and it just is a setup. For a, vi- for a bacteria to come in there. And I mentioned the word community acquired. So when we talk about pneumonias, you know, there are many different ways you could categorize and people say typical and atypical. Some people say community acquired or hospital acquired. And those are all correct statements. But because most of our patients will be coming from the community, we think about a community acquired pneumonias. And I always think about the big three. Number one is always gonna be strep pneumo. And for my med students out there, you love to hear buzzwords like rust colored sputum. When you look under the yogurt, look at these lancet shaped diplococci. So think about those type of things. You could diagnose strep pneumo with a urinary antigen, even though it's not that common to use, but you always want a culture to get sensitivities. Number two is always going to be haemophilus influenza, the bacteria. And number three, I don't see a lot of it. It could be Moxerella cateralis. I see that more when I think about COPD patients. But of course, you know, when you think about hospital acquired pneumonias, because some people could be in a nursing home or a long care, uh, long term facility, well, then you worry about some nasty, nasty gram negative bugs like pseudomonas or resistant bugs that we call staph aureus, like methicillin resistant uh, staph aureus, MRSA. Regardless of these bacteria or no bacteria, people with Uh, COVID-19 may go on to develop something called ARDS, which you said appropriately, and that stands for adult respiratory distress syndrome. And that is horrendous. So when we think about ARDS, I mean, I don't think there's enough time in this podcast to actually give you all the the gruesome details or the awesome teaching about it. But it's going to be a lung inflammatory syndrome where these wonderful, juicy, plump alveoli get filled with this inflammatory fluid. And you can imagine these alveoli get kind of, they shrink up, they get shriveled up, you know what I mean? So you can imagine if your alveoli are shriveled up, they lose surface area, you can't diffuse oxygen in well. And if these alveoli are Filled with this inflammatory exudate, that's another thing preventing CO2 from getting blown off and oxygen from coming in. And not to mention, your lungs are just very, very non-compliant. And for my step one listeners, what is compliance? That's always going to be about pressure and volume. So if you're going to be non-compliant, you need lots and lots of pressure for just a small little change in volume. And because of that it's really hard to blow off CO2 they become hypercapnic they have their alveoli are actually filled with inflammatory fluid and shrunken up. So they're very hypoxic. And there are very special ways that we have to ventilate them. Meaning that number one, anytime you have ARDS, you always, always, always get managed on the ventilator. We don't use non-invasive BiPAP or CPAP for these patients. They're in the ICU on the ventilator. And of course, you want to treat the underlying cause. And that could be giving antibiotics or if it's just the virus, kind of like waiting it out with supportive care. But I would say the teaching point, if there's one thing I could say that helps decrease mortality for ARDS, for ARDS on the ventilator, is that we use low tidal volumes. And what does that mean? It means that if we give normal tidal volumes that maybe me or Ted would use when we're breathing, they would all go to the good alveoli because there's still some good alveoli left in the lungs and they would rupture. So we give lower tidal volumes to protect the remaining good alveoli. And there are some, you know, physiological consequences of doing this, but studies have shown And a classic study is the ARDS trial, the alveoli trial that showed that low tidal volumes will help out more uh, improve survival. Here's where it kicks in. Do we have enough ICU beds? Do we have enough ICU uh, ventilators to help all these patients who may come in with coronavirus, as well as the our other usual patients to come in? And ARDS, like I said, uh, it's a law of supportive care. And I wanted to mention one, one, one really interesting statement. So for ARDS, a spicy, spicy topic is about giving steroids. And some studies have shown, yeah, give some steroids for ARDS and other studies, maybe not. So if you do give steroids, you want to give it earlier in, uh, in ARDS because it's a spectrum of disease that starts off with more of a, you know, exadata phase where maybe there's some active inflammation where steroids could work. And if it progresses, it goes to more of a fibrotic phase where you do nothing. And why am I bringing this up is because the uh, WHO and the CDC stated that if you just have coronavirus, there's no role for steroids. And that was a statement that was made. And I think that's important because, you know, if med students are watching doctors like me in the ICU, they probably get the impression I give everyone steroids <laughs> because it, you it know, <laughs> seems like no one leaves anyone's ICU without getting a dose of steroids. And that's really been a big controversial issue in the ICU is that, well, what are we going to do if someone with coronavirus comes in and they have ARDS, what's going to be the most important thing to do is give the steroids for the ARDS, or are we giving it for the coronavirus? But data clearly has shown for coronavirus itself, do not give steroids. And that's the take-home message.
1: That's a great learning point, Raj. And actually, I think you've kind of set this up for, if you don't mind doing a little bit more teaching for the students listening here, could we dive into ventilators even a little bit? Um, (laughs) Sure. about criteria for putting somebody on a ventilator, how they work, basic settings, criteria for discontinuing ventilation, you know, wherever you want to go with that, I think could be really helpful. I think sometimes ventilators are a little bit of a kind of a black box for students.
2: Here's the thing is that number one, I definitely think we should do a, another seg on ventilators, because now you're getting me super fired up, and we could do one. But let me give you the, the basics is that, you know, when do you want to put someone on the ventilator? You know, I think that when we think about positive pressure ventilation, which is actually the broader step one topic, because right now, me and Ted, we're breathing through negative pressure ventilation. When you put someone on positive pressure ventilation, there are two main types, non-invasive and invasive. And non-invasive are things like CPAP, which you guys probably think about sleep apnea quite a bit, or BiPAP, bi-level positive airway pressure. But that's giving positive pressure through a mask. And You know, sometimes it's nice to use that because people don't want to have a tube through their vocal cords into their trachea for a bunch of reasons. But the other type is invasive. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about ARDS. I need to put you on the ventilator itself. And, you know, I think the take-home message for this quick talk is, There is no set criteria. We don't intubate someone based upon an arterial blood gas. That's not the answer. You have to look at the broader picture. What is their mental status? Am I doing it for hypoxic respiratory failure? Am I doing it for hypercapnic respiratory failure? Am I doing it for the work of breathing? And all these things are definitely going to be factoring in when we think about doing it. And once I put them on the ventilator, well, here's where it gets a little tricky is kind of like what mode do you want to pick, you know, and I think that in broad strokes is that there are two broad modes. Number one, there is the Flintstones mode of ventilator called CMV, controlled mechanical ventilation, meaning that the ventilator controls everything. So if I want to breathe 14 breaths per minute, and I put 14, that's what you get, I can't breathe 16. I can't breathe 18 I, the ventilator controls everything. Now we use what's something called assist controlled mechanical ventilation. A CMV assist controlled meaning that, hey, let, uh, let's let's kind of let the patient be have some of the control here. So all the patient needs to do is trigger the vent in order to get a breath. So that's the new standard assist control mechanical ventilation. And of course, there are different types, you know, below that. And once again, I don't want to bore anyone out there. Trust me. So let me just say that the two broad modes are going to be a volume controlled mode and a pressure controlled mode, because when we talk about ventilating, it's all about my favorite C word in the whole world, which is compliance. So what happens is, is that if I choose a volume control mode, that means I'm In control of the volumes, what's going to be the limiting thing is going to be the pressures. The pressures. So, if I let's say I use a volume control mode, I always think about four things that I need to pick. Number one, I always think about what's going to be my FiO2. And if someone gets intubated, you give them 100% right off the bat and then maybe turn that down a little bit. I always pick a respiratory rate. If it's someone with ARDS, we tend to pick a higher respiratory rate right away. And you're going to ask me, Why, Dr. Raj? is because my tidal volume is going to be low. If I'm giving a low tidal volume, I try to make up a little bit for that by giving a higher respiratory rate because tidal volume times respiratory rate is minute ventilation. And the last thing I pick is something called PEEP. Positive and expiratory pressure, which is a button on the vent and then on the vent, which is kind of like when you're breathing out, imagine you're breathing out through a tube and at the end of expiration, you can imagine a valve shutting and you breathe against a closed valve. like. Hoo! And what happens pressure will back up and open up these alveoli. So there's volume where I pick the volume. The other one's called pressure controlled ventilation. And as it implies, I don't get to pick the volume. I get to choose the pressures, how much pressure I need to push in the air and what will be the variable be varying volumes. And sometimes I pick pressure control because I want to be in control of the pressures because I don't want to drive them up too much. And of course, once again, I pick the big four. What's my FAO 2 probably 100% what's my respiratory rate, probably a little bit on the faster side, maybe 18 to 20 breaths per minute. And of course, the tidal volumes are going to be varying. And I could always set my PEEP. And, you know, when we talk about what's my number for PEEP, well, how hypoxic are you? You know, usually I start off with five, but that number could go up to 10 to 15. And of course, I just can't take my PEEP button and crank it up as high as I want. Well, that will cause some barotrauma and I'll probably get a lawsuit. So we have to actually titrate the PEEP to these parameters called peak and plateau
1: pressures, do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions that are a little bit less um, medical and maybe a little bit more social around this <laughs> COVID-19 situation? Of course. Um, one is, I, I'd like to hear, like, what are responsible ways for media personalities like yourself in medicine and even media personalities outside of medicine to help address this this pandemic?
2: When um just uh yesterday I was actually at e Entertainment in uh, in Hollywood, they're on Universal Studios. I felt so celebrity-like being there, you know. And it was on a show called Pop News. And I really liked it for one reason, is that they wanted to be positive. And I think that, you know, when you're going on the news, uh, whether it be a website or Instagram, this podcast or on TV is that you have to be honest and try to give accurate information. And I told them I said, when I go on the air, I don't think the questions I want are going to be statistical questions, because I'll put my foot in my mouth because things are changing all the time. And I think that always trying to be honest, I think that my theme for Coronavirus is not going to change. I want to be prepared, but I don't want people to panic. And, you know, for those who listen to the whole podcast, you know, it's really easy that when you watch a lot of those news platforms, alert in bright red, and they give you numbers and everyone just panics, you know, and that's why there's a freaking toilet paper shortage out there, (laughs) you know. And so I think that there's always that fine line. So if you ever get a chance to watch this, uh, my episode on On uh, Pop News on E! It was very jovial and it was nice to show that I wanted people to realize that, hey, this is a tough time in our country. I know and I think that we need to stand together. And I do really, really, really um, appreciate NBA. NFL, all these athletes doing the right thing because of I feel that they're role models. And I think that all the things we're doing right now to help out with COVID-19 is not because I'm going to tell you, Ted, you're never going to die from COVID-19 and neither am I. But my mom and dad might you know and we're doing it for our elderly generations and that is a lot of responsibility and i think that young kids look to the lebron james you know to make see if he's doing the right thing and it's nice that they are doing it because they're going to be setting the bar for being a good influence because all we could do now is to do things that are in our control, which is the social isolation, you know, people still need to go to work. I'm doing this podcast from work, you know? <laughs> that's just the way it is. There's only so much you can do. So I think that being honest, trying to be up to date and trying to be positive. That's what people need to hear.
1: Yeah, that's a great message and, and dovetails nicely is with my next question, which is mm-hmm. how can the media contribute to combating the pandemic? And on the flip side, what can hurt the efforts around controlling and and helping to treat the situation?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the limiting factor and it's going to be everyone's going to like nod their head and say, I've heard that a 1000 times is the amount of testing kits, you know, and I think that every time I, I, I watch a news update, apparently, there should be a billion kits circulating somewhere that I haven't really seen. And people don't understand why that's the problem. It's the problem because that when the first outbreak occurred in the United States, I believe it was in Washington, oh, it would happen in a nursing home. But surprise, surprise, it affects the elderly. And at that time, if we had the testing kits, it would have been great that anyone who was in contact boom gets screened we know who to isolate but we didn't have the kids at the time and these people were just out and about and so now that we are you know when we talk about hey how um what is the mortality what is are we improving from day to day or getting worse all these things are based upon mathematics and having a denominator of how many cases do we have so when you ask me what's the mortality rate it's the number of cases based upon number of deaths based upon number of cases and because of The lack of kits in the United States, we never have an accurate denominator you know, talking about the disease itself or comparing to someone else. And when people always ask me, hey, Dr. Raj, like, how do we know when we're doing all this social isolation, uh, it's going to be working? Well, that's going to be when we know that the incidence of new cases are decreasing, you know, every day and every day. But the problem is, if you don't have the testing, how do you know you're having a decreased number of cases? So that's why everyone always has that question mark. Everyone says the word usually, everyone says the word hopefully. But I think that the same things, the same standards I hold myself to, I hope other journalists and media experts do the same. And I guess the one tip I would give is that if you're going to be giving medical information to anyone, I hope whoever it is, has a doctor present, because I think that you need that doctor to validate to agree with what's being said. I don't think it's fair that a only a publicist or newscaster should make such you know, strong statements, because it does raise a lot of panic.
1: That's a great point, Raj. I agree 100%. Mm -hmm. So our audience on this podcast is primarily medical students. Do you have thoughts on how medical students can help during this pandemic, especially as we're seeing classes get canceled and schools trying to do online stuff, and even um, clerkships and rotations get canceled? How, How can students potentially contribute here?
2: Oh, I mean, that's, you know what, I'm gonna give a shout out to some of my favorite medical students in the whole world. It's the University of California, Riverside, Uh, you didn't see that coming. So I'm also uh, an assistant professor at UCR. And I just actually did a uh, preparing for residency to the fourth year medical students. And you know, I go there almost every year. And in the prior years, I'm telling you that, Ted, the class was packed. This year, it was just like, you know, four people, five people, because they were showing responsibility. And they're like, Raj, we dig you the most, but there's something going on and we're just gonna telecast this and everyone's watching at home. Only the students that needed to be there for other reasons really showed up. And I loved it. I wasn't bummed out at all. I was still just as pumped up to give my lecture. And it really impressed me about that. It impressed me that, you know, if there wasn't a necessity to do a rotation, they were very uh, open to say, hey, maybe I don't need to be on campus at this time. I don't need to be in the hospital at this time. But the students, you know, I also hear the flip side that were like, hey, I want to be a doctor. And my job as a doctor is to be in that hospital. So if I need to be there. And they feel I need to be there. They were willing to actually do their rotation. So I think the fact that they were looking towards their, um, their mentors, and their directors of what's the best thing to do, and they were open to suggestion, I think was great. And another thing that um, I just want to say is that, you know, for anyone, not just medical students, Little things go a long way. And I think that, you know, teleconferencing my patients for care, you know, if they don't need to come see me in the office, I'm finally saying, you all right, let's do this teleconferencing thing. And I think it worked out really, really well. My wife and I, yeah, we love to go out and go to restaurants, but instead, you know, we still want to support our favorite restaurants. We call them for delivery. So there's a lot of things that everyone could do that I think is just very reasonable. So, um, you know, if yeah, if I had to take a guess, who's gonna probably make a killing from this stuff? It's probably gonna be like Disney Plus and Netflix because everyone's gonna
1: be at home <laughs>
2: watching right. TV and movies,
1: you know. <laughs> All right, everybody, you heard that there. For, there's there's the stock picks for the week from Dr. Raj. Um, how do you see this Raj affecting medical education with coursework, you know, rotations potentially getting put on pause um, right before match week too, right? So yeah, and it may. Even delay the you know how the, the next the current third years um, finish up their core clerkships. Do you ha, have you thought about this and how it might affect um, education? I, I just heard your your the um, discussion you did about s- step one USMLE step one going to pass fail. So I'm, yeah. I'm sure you've kind of given this other situation some thought too.
2: Sure, you know I think that uh, number one is that you know, we all have a sense of responsibility, you know, and and you know, and I'm pretty sure, you know, I mean, LeBron James isn't happy that, you know, the season's on hold with him on the cusp of winning a championship. Same thing when I think about my medical students, their passion is becoming the best doctor. But you know what, there's a higher priority at this time. And that's going to be being a role model, that's going to be protecting some of protecting people who are gonna be at the highest risk, which is our parents, people older in age. And I think that's the job of a doctor too, is to show compassion and good judgment. And that's where, you know, sometimes it's easy to do shortcuts. You know what I mean? It's easy for me when I'm in the hospital to not wash my hands or to high five and touch people and I always say to myself, it's it's beyond me, it's me trying to be a good role model for everyone else. Because how can I go on TV or talk in this podcast, if I don't do things myself. So I really think that it is a sacrifice, it stinks. And I think that I can even ask anyone out there, how has it affected them? It really has I mean, people want to go on trips, people deserve vacations, people have loved ones who are sick in other states. And, you know, I think that, you know, the students I've interacted with, you know, so far. Have only impressed me in the sense that they're like, you know, Doctor Raj. There's a bigger picture here, and they're really, uh, and they're really, uh, you know, being good sports about it. And honestly, more people are worried about step one being pass or fail when it comes to medicine versus how's the coronavirus going to affect it. So that's my take.
1: <laughs> right, right. Well, you've got, you've got a great approach to all of this. Yeah, um, I heard you mention LeBron James. If I'm remembering right, you're a big Laker fan, just like I am.
2: Yeah, you know, um, I I had the tears and, you know, this has been just a a disaster of a year for the Lakers between Kobe Bryant and now the the coronavirus. But you know what? Uh, Our time will come soon.
1: I I certainly hope so. (laughs) Uh, You know, I think one thing that we need to all remember here, too, is that there are a lot of people um, who are working paycheck to paycheck and, and really don't have the give in, in their financial situation and can really be affected by this covid-19 situation and 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 schools being shut down and and needing to find childcare <laughs> and and as you mentioned the restaurants are are effect- potentially affected too as fewer people go out to eat and you know it's going to affect movie theaters and all kinds of yeah. different different things you live somewhere over uh, in LA right on the east side
2: is that i do i do yeah. I, you know i live i don't live in uh, really close to Pasadena. I yes. live in a place called La Canata. And it sounds really fancy, but it's just spelled La Canada, but it doesn't sound sexy. <laughs> you call it La Canada.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I want to give you a chance, you know, since the restaurants and all kinds of business, small businesses are potentially going to be really affected by this. Yeah. Any favorite restaurants that you want to give a shout out to you know, just to help, kind of help support them through this situation?
2: Oh, my God. You know, there's a pizza place right by my house. It's called um, Hello Pizza. And it's owned by this awesome, it's an an Asian restaurant, but they make like American pizza with like an Asian feel to it. And it's so tasty. And it just stinks that uh, they're a mom and pop place. And there when I call them up, they're like, because they're new, because it's small, they know your name, like, Raj, is it you? What did we want? So um, Hello Pizza. I wish you all the best. We're still ordering your food. I'll probably order it tonight when I get home. Okay,
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And let let them know that you're you gave them a shout out on the podcast. So I will help their I business a little will. bit. Yeah. <laughs> so Raj, as we wind down here, uh, are there any other messages you want to put out there, or any other thoughts about COVID nineteen or or even teaching topics that you think students need to hear?
2: You know, I would say one of my favorite little tidbits before I say goodbye is that, you know, people have always asked me, why is it called, you know, coronavirus? And I just want everyone to know for sure that it's not because it's named after drinking a beer under a palm tree. OK, that's <laughs> not why it's coronavirus. It's called coronaviruses because when you look under the microscope, it actually looks like a crown. That's what, you know, corona means. And it has little spikes on it. I'm sure all of us have seen this when we see these newscasts, they put a the little, you know, Chiron up there about coronavirus. But I think, you know, everyone, once again, I love being redundant. Repetition is key in teaching is that, you know, be prepared. There's no harm in being prepared, but please don't be panicked. And the last P that I always want to mention is, is be positive. And that's why I'm always smiling. If you ever look at me on my social media, I always think that sees the good in people and the good in things. And I know that, you know, as a country, as you know, we're going to survive. And before I forget, the last thing I want to say is I want to give a shout out to everyone who is working hard to help with coronavirus around the world. And I want to give a sincere that I hope everyone who's infected or had loved ones infected, I wish you the best medical course.
1: Your messaging is just absolutely great, Raj. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day uh, to join us on this podcast. I think students are going to find this to be super helpful. I hope that at some point in the near future, we can have you back and talk about ventilators and even pick your brain on other topics since uh, it's just such a wealth of knowledge. So thank you very much for joining us.
2: Oh, you're super welcome. And I'm going to take you up on that, Ted. we're going to come back. We're going to talk about those ventilators.
1: Awesome. All right, Raj. We'll have a great rest of your day, okay? You too, buddy. All right. Take care.